All right, so here's, here's what's amazing. As we get into Isaiah 50, um, there, there is, we're, we're basically hundreds of years before Jesus ever came to earth. Isaiah's writing what he's writing hundreds of years before Jesus came to earth, probably about 400. It's a long time. We can't even really fathom that kind of length of time very well. Um, and yet what he says to us um, is, is so beautifully lined up with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's, it's, an, it's an incredible thing. Um, when we look at verse 4 through 9 of chapter 50, we are going to see the, the, the gospel clearly laid out. We're not going to see Jesus by name, but we're going to see his work, what he accomplishes, what he's done. And, and so that's really the first section is what has Jesus done for us in the gospel? And then we'll see what he does in us as we believe in the gospel, trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, and so when I've explained the gospel to people, and, and uh, you guys have probably explained it this way too, the, the, the gospel is very simple to understand. There's three things. There is the sinless life of Jesus, that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. Without that, there is no gospel. If Jesus didn't live a perfect, sinless life, he would be different, no different than any other person. But Jesus lived a totally different, unique life. He was perfect and sinless. Second thing about the gospel is that he lived a sinless life, but he also died in the place of sinners. That he took our place. Theologians call it the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. And that's a mouthful, but it's just simply meaning that Jesus took the place, was the substitute of sinners. As he died on the cross, he took our, our sin upon himself and paid for it. And then the third thing is that Jesus rose again from the dead. There is no good news in a dead Savior, but there is great news in a living Savior. And so that that understanding of the gospel, that simple message of the sinless life, the, the uh, substitutionary death and the bodily resurrection of Jesus is amazingly laid out here in this passage. Um, so I, I'm going to throw the words up on the screen here, and this is really fancy. I know we, you've been gone 10 weeks and we get real fancy around here. Um, no, no, I, I didn't do any work on that. That's just part of our program. So I'm like, okay, cool. Um, but yeah, so this is, we're just going to walk through it and I'll, I'll be flipping back and forth through these as we walk through it. But, but here's the first one. Um, we see the sinless life of Jesus clearly taught in this passage. Uh, here's what it says. The Lord has given me. All right, let's stop there. Now me, who's, he, who's Isaiah talking about? Is he talking about himself? Is he talking about you and me? No, um, we're in a section of Isaiah where um, it, it's referred to as the servant songs. There are four basically poems um, that Isaiah lays out throughout this section uh, that refer to the servant of the Lord, who we would call, we, would, we know him as Jesus, but he would be known as the Messiah, the Savior, whatever. Uh, he's referred to as the servant of the Lord. Um, and so when Isaiah is writing this, he's writing um, the, from the perspective of the Messiah, of the servant. So this is like Jesus speaking these words. Um, that's essentially what is happening. So when you see me, uh, that's who he's talking about. It's, it's Jesus. So the Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. 
morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and here's the key phrase, and I was not rebellious, I turned not backward. The the Messiah that would come and save God's people was not rebellious and never turned backward. He, He was perfect in everything he did. He never once heard from God and said, no, I'm not doing that. He never once had a a mentality of what God says I'm not going to do. Like that's what the first part of verse four is talking about. Like he, he's had, uh, he's been given a tongue of those who are taught. In other words, he's speaking the truth of God uh, as one who has knowledge and understanding. He knows how to sustain with a word him who is weary. And then it says that God has opened my ear morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. So God is speaking to Jesus and telling Jesus what he ought to do. And Jesus does perfectly everything God says. Jesus talks about this in his own life as we get into the New Testament. He, he talks about it as uh, when he's speaking to his disciples. He says, as the Father sent me, so I send you. Right? He's, he's speaking as if, hey, God is telling me He sent me. He's telling me what to do. I'm on this mission, and I'm going to send you on a mission too. We don't live out perfectly what Jesus tells us to do, but he perfectly obeyed the Father. And so the Father here is is, uh, being obeyed, and and Jesus never, ever rebelled. That's the sinless life of Jesus in a nutshell, right? In In a very simple Old Testament way, this is what it's talking about. It's preparing us for the sinless Savior that we see clearly in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We we get a record of Jesus' life, and his whole life is that of obedience to the Father. That's most succinctly taught in Matthew 4 uh, and the the parallel passages about Jesus' temptation and how he just resisted temptation and perfectly obeyed. So that's the sinless life of Jesus. The next thing here is in verse 6. Now, 6 and 7 are both on the slide, but we're just going to read verse 6 for a moment and talk about what it says. It says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. This is a reference to the, to the suffering and death of Jesus. I mean, we, we can see throughout history, right? As we look back on these verses, we can go, well, that's clearly talking about Jesus' suffering. His, the fact that his back was whipped and, and he was beaten and spit upon. We see that the suffering of Jesus is being um, displayed here and, he, and Isaiah is preparing the people for the suffering Savior. But what I really want you to notice is that first phrase, I gave my back. Jesus did not suffer as a helpless victim. He did not suffer merely as a big misunderstanding and get caught up in something that was too big for him. No, he was a willing sacrifice for sinners. He gave his back for us. He he endured the cross the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews, he did so with joy. 
knowing what was set before him. He went to the cross. He willingly paid the price for sinners. That should, that should elevate your, your face to him and lift up your spirits because Jesus died for you graciously and willingly went to the cross. So again, this is not the full picture. This is Old Testament. It's preparing people. As we look back on it, we can see what Jesus is doing in it. But, but again, it's just giving us those glimpses of the sinless life and the suffering Savior that he would be. But there's one more thing we need to look at in this first section. It's that Jesus was also raised from the dead. Look at verse 7 through 9. It says, But the Lord helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Verse 8, He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Now you'll notice that there's nothing in there that specifically refers to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. There's nothing in there that that just like spells it out as, okay, this guy's going to rise from the dead. But there are indications of what is being referred to here. Again, we got to remember that the Bible is all about Jesus, right? Jesus sits at the center of the Bible. Everything in the Old Testament is looking forward to him. So it doesn't have the whole picture, but they're pointing the, the way to him. And everything in the New Testament points back at him so we can look clearly at who he is. And so the whole Bible is about Jesus. But As we look at this, um, there are a couple of phrases that that are important to notice. The first is at the end of verse 7, which says, And I know that I shall not be put to shame. So, though he's going to be put to shame by this striking of his face, having his beard pulled out, uh, having his back whipped, that is shame, right? That is shame. And he didn't turn his face away from disgrace and spitting. Because ultimately he knows that he will not be put to shame. Not eternally, not forever. That there will be what verse 8 says, there will be one who vindicates him. So that phrase, he, him, he will not be put to shame and he who vindicates me is near, I think are the key phrases in this to point us to the resurrection. Because in both both of those phrases are mentioned in the New Testament uh, in reference to the resurrection of Jesus. That, that he will not be put to shame is mentioned, uh, I believe, in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, but there's also a reference to being vindicated uh, in 1 Timothy 3, 16. And I'll, I'll read that for you. It says, Christ was revealed in a human body and vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by the angels and announced to the nations he was believed in throughout the world and taken up to heaven in glory. Here you see Jesus, Paul's using uh, what was probably an early creed or a song perhaps, a lyric of a worship song in those early days. This is, if you read it in the text, you see that it's kind of broken into like this poetry section. Anyways, but this, this passage I just read, this verse I just read, it refers to the vindication of God, of Jesus Christ. And it's referencing being revealed in a human body, vindicated by the Spirit, and then seen by the angels, 
pronounced to the nations, believed in throughout the world, and taken into glory. That can mean no other thing but the resurrection of Jesus. And so here we have this vindication that's mentioned here. And so what, what is amazing in this text, it's so incredible how it just spells out the sinless life, the, the suffering and death, and the bodily resurrection of Jesus in this Old Testament passage. It's amazing. Now, as we get into the next uh, section here, there's, a, there's an important couple of verses we need to hear. Because I think verse 10 and 11 are going to be the key verses to understanding how this connects from what Jesus has done to what Jesus does in us. What's the pivot there? What's the connection? And that's clear in verse 10 and 11. It says, verse 10, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. So the first thing we see is there's a call. There's a call to those of us who walk in darkness to trust and rely on God for light, to to actually have the Lord bring us clarity and wisdom and show us the way. But in verse 11, we see that there's an alternative that that we can walk in. It says, Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire, and the torches that you have kindled, this you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. Now that's not warm fuzzy, but let me just tell you what that's saying. Verse 10 and 11 are giving us two alternative paths. Verse 10 tells us that we can recognize the fact that we walk in darkness without the light of the Lord. And so our only hope, our only real opportunity is to turn to him. It says to, uh, to rely on our God, to trust in his name. See, every human being walks in darkness without Jesus Christ opening our eyes to see. That's a fact. We all need the light of the Lord. But there are people, and, and all of us at one point or another were in this boat. It's not like we're looking down on anybody. We're just saying, Everyone at one point or another is in this boat where we think, in, like in verse 11, that, hey, I, I can do this. I can light my own torch and lead my own way and walk in my own path. And the promise in that is that it's not going to lead you to life and joy. It's going to lead to suffering and pain. So the, the obvious point here that Isaiah is trying to make is that we have a crossroad that we are standing on. Every one of us has a crossroad that we have to say, okay, do we trust in Jesus to be our light and our hope? Or do we put all of our trust in ourselves and think that we can light our own way back to him? Now, as, as we get into this next chapter, we're going to see what Isaiah, through the servant song, is reminding us of. And for those of us who do, walk and trust in the light of the Lord. Um, the assumption is that you will, right? That's, 
That's the hope, right? That's what the assumption is that you're going to take the right path and you're going to walk in the light of the Lord. So if you do, here's here really in the next uh, eight verses or so, we're going to see three things that Jesus does in us as we trust and believe in the gospel. So let's look at verse uh, one through three. It says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you, for he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of a song. So the first thing that we see in this passage that Jesus does in us is that he offers us comfort as he gives us life. He brings us comfort as he gives us new life. Notice in verses 1 and 2, it's talking about, um, it says, listen to me, and then it says, look to the rock from which you were hewn and from the quarry from which you were dug. Now, now, here's the fact, right? Um, Nothing grows from a rock. Things can grow on rocks, but nothing grows from a rock. And quarries are not the ideal place to plant a garden. So the point that that Isaiah is making here is this. Um, God has dug you out of nothingness and death and has given you a new life. He has taken you from a rock and he's taken you out of a quarry and he's brought you life where there was no life. And and then he says in verse 2, he says, look to Abraham, your father, and Sarah who bore you. Now you might think, well, those are humans, right? They have children and then those children have children. That's how it all works. Um, That's true. But when you understand the story of Abraham and Sarah, and you read that story and you, you read it in its context in, uh, in Genesis, but then also looking at the New Testament, we're told that they were, they were the Bible actually says they were as good as dead when God told them that they were going to have a baby. Sarah was, I think, 90 years old when she had her son Isaac. That is ridiculous. Right? Nobody has children at 90 years old and for good reason. Right? That's just not how it's that's just not how it's done. But God does miracles in these things. And so that's the point that Isaiah, through this poem, is is making the point that think about your own spiritual heritage. Think about your own lineage. You came from these two people who were a hundred and then 90, and they had no chance of making babies, and yet here you are. God does the work, and because he does the work, that's where verse 3 comes in. Because of this, the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all of her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. There is life that Jesus gives where there was only death. Jesus brings life as we trust in him. That's comforting. That's comforting. That's why the, the, um, 
one of the old catechisms uh, from back in the 1500s that asked the first question. It says, what is our only comfort in life and death? And the answer to that is because we're not our own, but belong to God. Right, we, have, we have comfort in the gospel as we believe and trust in Jesus. That's the first thing. In fact, that's what Jesus tells us in Matthew 11. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Secondly, verse uh, 4 through 6. This is a, there's a lot of words in these next few verses, so we'll read them and then we'll kind of back up and talk about it. It says, Give attention to me, my people. Give, I just want to stop and say, notice that every section here is going to start with either listen to me or pay attention to me. It's important. I think we, we need to hear that too. That there's a reason for this because we're so easily f- forgetful of these truths. <clears throat> give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me and I will set ju- my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out. And my arms will judge the peoples and the coastland. The coastlands hope for me, and I, uh, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Now, there's a lot there, and I think we can, there's a lot we could say about this passage. But um, here's, here's what I think um, Jesus is getting at in this, in this section. Um, we, need rec- we need to have an understanding that as we trust in Jesus, he's going to do the transforming work that needs to be done in us and in our world. Um, Jesus is going to be our transforming power. He's, he's talking about how... Um, you know, all these things are kind of have gone wrong. But because of his salvation, because of his, the hope he offers us in, in his life and death, we're, we're going to see a, a new thing happen. We're going to see a transformation that will never be dismayed. Jesus is the transforming power we need to trust in. So when you are discouraged, as I'm often discouraged in my own life of the slow progress of, of change. The sanctification process is what theologians call it, right? The, the idea that God is working in us and he's going to make us what he wants. That, that process is painfully slow at times, oftentimes, and if not most of the time. And so we can get so discouraged and busted up about that, but what we can also say is this, um, even though our, our growth may be slow, Jesus is still the one doing the, the growing in us. He's the one who has the power to change us. And that's what Galatians tells us. Galatians 3, verse 3, Paul asks a couple of rhetorical questions. And he says, um, are you so foolish? The answer is yes. And then he asks a second question. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So, so here's what he's drawing out from that church. This church, the Galatian church, had, had lost sight of the gospel. They thought that because they believed in Jesus, they could then figure it out the rest for themselves. And they could just figure out the right rules to follow. And that was a problem. Paul's saying, no, no, no. If, if you acknowledge that Jesus, through the Spirit, began a work in you, 
then how in the world can you say that you're now being perfected or sanctified or seeing the growth in Christ in your own efforts? You, you can't. Those things don't align. They don't work together. It's, it's God does the work. Jesus does the work. And he's transforming us. Oh, there's one more. Um, <clears throat> this is uh, verse 7 and 8. And this, one's, this one's big, I think, for me. Um, so maybe for you too, but certainly for me. Here's, here's what it says. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. So that's a reference to people who have trusted in, in the work of Christ, right? That's, that's what he's referring to. And here's what he tells us. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. Here's the key phrase in this passage. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. This is really important because I think this is one of those things that we as Christians struggle with really badly, uh, and I know I do. Where do we get approval? Where do we get uh, our, our sense of significance? For many of us, it's in the opinions of others how they think of us, what they believe about us. And so when they are reviling us or when they are reproaching us, we get all out of sorts. We get really frustrated. But what what we're being reminded of is this, that Jesus approves of us. Not because we're inherently good and righteous, but because he is. Because he is. Jesus approves of us because of his righteousness, not mine. And, and so this, this struck me um, yesterday, actually. Of course, of course, it always hits like the day before you're going to preach something, right? And, and I've had this all planned out, you know, for the better part of the week and um, came here to get some things just buttoned up um, with my sermon and went to Walmart and uh, started doing the grocery thing. And, I, you know, here's, we've all been here, right? You're Busy Walmart, it's Memorial Day weekend, everybody's there, and um, you're, you're pushing your cart and, and you're coming to an intersection and you don't see somebody coming and you kind of have this like almost collision, right? Near collision. That happened. Um, it was totally my fault. Um, I didn't look well enough. I was trying to rush through. And uh, so I, I get almost into this cart collision with this, this guy. And uh, I said, you know, I'm really sorry, uh, you know. My, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean that. And just thought that'd be the end of it. Um, well, he doesn't say a word to me, but what he does is he just rolls his eyes. Like as, as I thought they were going to get stuck in the back of his head. He rolled his eyes so, so hard. I was like, okay, interesting. Um, and I was just ticked off. Like my first thought was, this guy's a jerk. And there were probably some other adjectives in my mind that I can't say here. Um, I was just mad, like, what in the world? And my second thought was, this guy's probably from Illinois, so, you know, uh, which I am too, so that's, that's, not a, that's not a slam. I'm from Illinois, so I, I'm like, what does that say about me? But 
Um, but I was mad. I was just, and so I spent the rest of that shopping trip just fuming in my, in my heart over this harmless interaction with a person who was annoyed that I almost crashed into him, which he had the right to be kind of annoyed at that too. So I was like, and I was all out of sorts. I was just mad and like, oh, who does that guy think he is? And, um, you know, and so going through all the things, right? Your inner lawyer comes out when, whenever, you know, you're, you've been abused in some way, right? And I wasn't even abused. I was just had my head his rolls up, eyes rolled at me. But I was mad. So I get back to the car. I'm still thinking about it, still frustrated. And uh, it was like, I sat down and it was almost like just a moment where I'm going, like Jesus is sitting next to me and saying, what are you freaking out about? <laughs> like, why are you so, you literally just went through this as you pre- prepared for your sermon that my opinion is, is more important than others. I got, that just thought came to my mind and I started to realize, wow, I am not very good at, at practicing what I'm about to preach. And, and that's the truth for all of us. We all struggle. And I got so mad at somebody who was not even, who did nothing to me. But because I knew he was annoyed at me, I got annoyed at him. And that was just ridiculous. And so again, I had to be reminded uh, that his opinion of me, as he goes back to Illinois, uh, probably, um, as he, you know, as he goes back home, uh, I'm just thinking, it doesn't, he, has, he probably hasn't given two thoughts to that since this, that moment, but I've been stewing in it for days, you know, right? Like, that's how, that's how it is. And if we're not resting in the righteousness that we have in Jesus, and the fact that he is enough and that he's happy with me because of his imputed, given, gifted righteousness, then, you know, we're, we're going to be constantly freaking out about things that just don't matter. And, and I was just reminded again of Romans 8, 1 through 4. says, Now therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law could not do, weakened by the flesh. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now that verse boiled down, those four verses boiled down, simply say this. God says to us, because of the righteousness of Jesus, you are righteous. Therefore, you have no one to fear, nothing to prove, and no one to impress. That's true. We need to hear it. Otherwise, we're going to fear the reproach of man and be dismayed at his reviling. I... I... I just was struck with that this week and I, I just yesterday actually and just really, really need to hear it. I, I'm, I'm not sure where you're at on this, but we all need the reminder that we are okay in Jesus because of what he's done for us. We don't have to prove anything. We don't have to impress anybody. And so with that reminder, I, I want to just kind of conclude our time. Um, I'll pray, but... We really need to conclude our time by the tangible reminder of this through communion. And we've been away from each other for 10 Sundays. And so we're a weekly communion church. We take it every week. And, and we, 
So it's been a long time for us to not remember the Lord's suffering and death on our, on our behalf. And so we're going to take some time to do that. Um, we're going to do it a little differently because of social distancing and those kind of things. We're just trying to be precautious. Um, but we're, what we're going to do is just invite you, um, as Crystal leads us in a song, um, to go to one of the tables and grab uh, the, a stack of the cups. There's two, there's two cups stacked on top of each other. And they should be spaced out enough in the tray where you don't have to touch any other ones. Um, and just grab what you're going to take and bring it back to your seat. And so at the end of that song, we'll, we'll partake of the, the Lord's table together. You can hold on to it until we take it together. And then, um, then we'll sing another song to conclude our time. Uh, so that's what we're going to do. But let me, let me pray for us as we get there. And then I'll have Crystal come and, and lead us in a song as you guys go and uh, prepare for communion. Um, Father, thank you for your reminder to us today that even though we have strayed so far from you, you have lovingly embraced us and run towards us and have saved us through Jesus. We pray that the reminder of the gospel today fills our hearts with joy and gladness and we pray that we would lift to you our praise this uh, this morning. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.